0: stops here plug the radio in yeah, Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Evidence for Faith radio show. This is where we help Christians become thinkers, and thinkers become Christians. If you'd like to call the show today, you can reach us at 609-398-1020. My name is Keith Kendricks.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Laracus,
0: And we have a great show today. Um, Mike, uh, just double-check your mic again. I'm not sure you came through. Hi,
1: I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Yeah, that's much better. Thanks, thank you. Good.
0: So, Mike, I don't know if you know, this Tuesday I'm going to be flying down to New Orleans. Tell for, me about it. This is the Evangelical Philosophical Society, of which I'm a member, but it is the largest philosophy society in the United States. It is an evangelical uh, organization, and we're going to be... I'm going to be listening to a lot of apologists and philosophers discuss the evidences for Christianity.
1: Sounds to me like we're going to have a very interesting radio show next week. If we can uh, talk about some of those interesting topics, that would be great. Yep, yep. And then the week
0: after that, we'll discuss some of the amazing claims that Jesus made, including the one that he is the only way to heaven— Last week, we had a couple of callers that questioned, you know, what about those people who are living in darkest Africa, never hear the gospel? That seems unfair that they don't get to go to heaven. So um, we're going to be addressing those issues. I've got a quote that came across the thinkchristianly.org site. I like this site. The, the, The guy that runs it does a great job. He's got a quote up there from C.S. Lewis, and and this really kind of encapsulates something of what we're trying to do on this show, why we're trying to get the truth out. C.S. Lewis says, If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. So... Comfort is something, human flourishing is something that you don't get by trying to attack it head-on. First, you have to discover the truth, and that's the truth that uh, we're trying to teach
1: people about. I find it very interesting that he uses the term soft soap, and you won't find true cleaning or healing. If you want true cleaning and true healing, you have to go to the man himself, and that would be Jesus and the blood of Christ. There's going to be some truth presented soon, this Saturday, in fact. Why don't you
0: tell people about what's coming
1: up at Pilgrim Academy? Actually, Keith, I'm, I'm actually very excited uh, about this uh, seminar that's going to be uh, sponsored by the Pilgrim Academy uh, in South Jersey. Uh, they're going to be hosting a uh, uh, Mr. James Gardner, who we do have on the phone today as our special guest. And he speaks extensively uh, for the Institute of Creation Research um, as well as um, 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 answers uh, in Genesis. So uh, we're going to be hosting him at the Pilgrim Academy, and he's going to be talking about a number of uh, topics, The uh, conference starts at 9.30 in the morning and goes to 3.30 in the afternoon. And that's this Saturday? It's this Saturday at the Pilgrim Academy. We're going to give you a telephone number and a contact person. Let's go ahead and and do that right now. Okay. Um, We have um, the Pilgrim Academy is located at 301 West Moss Mill Road, and it's really just a hop, skip, and a jump from Smithville. So if you know where Smithville is, if you get off on the um, Garden State Parkway at that exit— You go down Moss Mill Road, probably two miles, and it's right there, 301 West Moss Mill Road. Does this cost any money? It's $10 per person or $25 per family. But the interesting thing is that lunch will be provided, so it's a deal. All right. So people call? 609-965-2866. 965-2866. And that's um, this Saturday, coming up at the Pilgrim Academy.
0: And with us to discuss this conference is Mr. Yeah, Jim Gardner. Are you there, Jim?
2: Yeah, I'm here. How are you guys? Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh,
0: Welcome to the show.
2: Well, I appreciate you giving me a chance to get on board a little bit early. Uh, I've been looking forward to next week for some time, and uh, trusting that the Lord's going to do some great things next Saturday and Sunday.
0: Great. Well, for those who have not heard about Answers in Genesis, that's the organization that you're speaking on behalf of. Can you tell us a little bit about Answers in Genesis? What is their ministry and mission about?
2: Well, Answers in Genesis is an organization that was founded back in 1994 by Ken Ham and uh, several other people who joined him when he left the Institute for Creation Research, Uh, The specific purpose of Answers in Genesis is to teach the truth of the Bible, beginning with the very first verse of Genesis. In this day and age, we have many, many people in our churches beginning to question whether or not uh, the Bible is the Word of God, or whether it contains the Word of God, and there is a very big difference between those two. And they are questioning especially uh, the things that are talked about in the old testament and in genesis i mean there's a lot of pastors and teachers and churches today teaching that you know we don't have to pay much attention to the old testament that was written to a bunch of old hebrew guys that died thousands of years ago right and don't really have much to do with us living in the year 2009 and yet the Old Testament was quoted many times by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and so there's no question that Jesus Christ took the Old Testament as literal and historical. Yeah, that's... And we need to do the same. And that's the purpose of Answers in Genesis, Okay, is to teach the truth of creation beginning with the very first verse.
0: Yeah, my, um, my devil's advocate uh, question was going to be, do you mean to say that there are answers in Genesis? That book is, like, so old.
2: Yep, it really is old, but, uh, and yes, again, uh, there are answers in the book of Genesis. In fact, if a serious Bible scholar will really look at the book of Genesis, I think I can safely say that uh, all or almost all of our Christian doctrines have their roots in Genesis. And so if you do not understand the book of Genesis, if you do not take it literally to be the Word of God and historical and narrative, then you really do injustice to many of the doctrines that we hold uh, very strongly as uh, as evangelical Christians.
0: Now, I was very interested in something you said a little bit earlier, um, the distinction, you made a distinction between that uh, God's God's Word is in the Bible or God's, uh, God's Word is the Bible.
1: Contained in the Bible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, there, that's there, a dis- there's,
2: a, there's a difference. Yeah, A lot of people today believe the Bible contains the Word of God. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I ask that question, and many times I do, uh, if I ask it, you know, who, how many of you believe the Bible contains the Word of God, almost everyone to a, a man will raise their hand. And yet, I completely think that's incorrect, that the Bible doesn't contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. And I draw that from a verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, except the parts you don't like, you can ignore those. (laughs) Right. Well, of course it doesn't say that. It doesn't say you can ignore those parts. You see, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, so the follow-on question is, what part about all don't you understand? Mm. And I I don't mean to be, you know, cutesy about that, but it's really true. Because uh, the Scripture itself, um, you know, says in Revelation, you don't add one thing or you don't take away one thing from that uh, canon, from the inspired Word of God. And that's where Answers in Genesis stands, and that's where I stand, that you cannot take bits and pieces of the Scripture and twist them to mean whatever you want them to mean, I believe God was fully capable of saying exactly what he meant, and that he meant exactly what he said, Mm. especially when it comes to origins and what he wrote to us in Genesis. Uh,
1: James, give us a little background about yourself.
2: Well, I was born in 1950, so I'm, um, just before turning 60, I was uh, born in St. Paul, Minnesota. My parents, two years later, at the age of two, When I was two, they became missionaries to the country of Thailand for the Christian Missionary Alliance. And so for ten years, from age two to age twelve, I lived in Thailand with my parents. Now, twice a year, uh, my father would take me down to Bangkok and put me on an Air Vietnam DC-3. I was flown from Bangkok to Saigon where I was met by missionaries in Saigon, Vietnam, and driven up into the central highlands of Vietnam, where I went to a, a school, a missionary boarding school called DeLot. And the, the interesting thing about that was, at DeLot, as it was at home, all I was ever taught was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that's basically what I accepted. Uh, That's, in fact, what a lot of kids do. They accept what, you know, parents teach them, no matter what political persuasion they may be or religious persuasion and so forth. Then in 1962, we came back from Thailand, and my dad took a church in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I entered the public education system for the very first time. And I began hearing about this thing called evolution. Well, Guys, I didn't even know what it was. I'd never even heard of such a thing. Mm. And, you know, I was kind of a celebrity in the junior high school. I mean, oh, this guy lives, you know, out there in Vietnam and Thailand, you know, king cobras and 12-inch long leeches and big monster scorpions. You know, kids, I I was kind of a celebrity. And uh, so they would ask me, what do you think about this evolution thing? And I would say, well, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that's just good enough for me. And then when I got into my 20s and the scientists started talking about, oh, carbon-14 dating, that proves the world's millions of years old. People would ask me, well, what do you think about that? And I would simply respond, well, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and if you took a million years to do it, that's still okay with me. But what I didn't realize was that I was beginning to accept the words of scientists who have fallen brains, who don't know everything, and who were not there at the beginning, And I was adding their words to the words of one who does know everything and was there at the beginning and told us how he did it. And I didn't realize that you could not blend evolution and biblical creation because they were actually two different worldviews going in opposite directions. So it started me on a downward spiral that didn't end for 20 years. And my point about mentioning this is that If evolution can infect the mind of a young man who is given every advantage, born into a Christian home, Christian parents, raised and sequestered on a mission field, um, raised in a missionary boarding school, if it could infect my mind, I will guarantee you it can affect the minds and hearts of our kids and our grandkids that are in our churches today. Well, after a period of, of rebellion and moving away from God, God finally... Let me have enough rope, and he yanked it. And uh, I heard a uh, you know a man named Dr. Henry Morris, the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, mm-hmm. along with uh, Ken Ham and Dr. John Morris and Dr. Steve Austin, a number of people doing a seminar down in West Palm Beach in the 80s. And I read a book that Ken Ham had written called Evolution the Lie, and boy, I'll tell you what, it turned me around, uh, made me angry that I'd been a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution for all of those years. But anyway, after, after going through this period of rebellion, when I was 33 years old, I started an electronics wholesale distribution business. God blessed that business. And 10 years later, at the age of 43, I sold that business and retired, and went into full-time ministry doing exactly what I'm doing today, working hand-in-hand with the Institute for Creation Research and also with Answers in Genesis. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of my background, and I want uh, your listeners to know, and I will mention this next Saturday, I do not have an advanced science degree. My background is business, but I have had 18 wonderful years of traveling around the world and studying the geology and the biology and the astronomy and the archaeology, I mean, I've had a ball and um, been able to learn a lot, and now I feel that uh, the Lord has called me to try to, in a very straight, plain, uh, straightforward way, to, to bring this information to the average person like me that's sitting out there in the pew of our churches and uh, increase their faith.
0: Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis.
0: And we have on the line our guest, James Gardner, from Answers in Genesis. You can call in if you'd like to at 609-398-1020. So, James, your bio says that you've been as many as eight trips to the Grand Canyon in the last ten years. That sounds fascinating.
2: Ah, it is fascinating. Actually, that's now 12 trips in the last uh, 15 years. I, I go every chance I get. Uh, my wife has decided she's gone enough. She's not going anymore. My, but uh, <laughs> Anyway, the, yeah, the latest trip was last year. I, uh, I'm a pilot. I've had uh, a, a, my pilot's license for over 35 years. And uh, last year, I took a small four-place aircraft, uh, took off out of our home in eastern Tip of Tennessee in Mountain City and flew west with my wife and my son, who is also a pilot. And by the way, he is a sophomore at Pensacola Christian College. But uh, we took off and we flew all over out west over the top of Grand Canyon and Zion Canyon and Bryce Canyon and Canyonlands National Park. Let me tell you something, fellas. Everything looks a whole lot different from 500 feet up. I bet it does. And so after studying it all those years, studying the geology from the ground, and all of those trips, by flying over a lot of that in a small airplane very low to the ground, I was able to see some new geologic features that uh, that just affirm what we have been teaching about Grand Canyon and the global flood for a long time.
1: Wonderful. It seems to me, uh, Mr. Gardner, that, uh, and I've made that observation too from more more than 30,000 feet from the air flying over the Grand Canyon, that it can make you believe in a flood uh, geology theory. Uh, But more than that, there's fossil evidence within the Grand Canyon itself that would suggest that a a global flood truly did happen. Can you explain some of that uh, to our listeners?
2: Well, one of the the things that was interesting about Grand Canyon to me as I began to study this, and let me just be very clear here, I am not an expert on Grand Canyon in spite of all the times that I've been out there. But uh, there have been some other creation scientists uh, who have done some tremendous work in Grand Canyon. Uh, Steve Austin uh, of the Institute for Creation Research for many years is one of them. But uh, for a long time, uh, most of the fossils that they found in Grand Canyon were basically trackways, where you know worms or things would call through the mud and left trackways. But there was can- one canyon, uh, a side canyon on the upper end of Grand Canyon that they called Nautiloid Canyon, where they had discovered... Some nautiloids, and that's uh, simply a, a you know a fossil that uh, looks like a long ice cream cone. Some of them uh, pretty large, uh, as mu- as long as three feet. But there were a few of them found in that canyon, and so they thought that that was you know basically uh, an interesting feature of that canyon. And then Dr. Steve Austin, I think I can just paraphrase what happened. Uh, simply, uh, you know, using the the idea and the observation that well, if these nautiloids appear in this particular layer here, Um, maybe we'll find them in the same layer elsewhere in the canyon. And, in fact, that's exactly what they found. The Grand Canyon contains as many as a billion of these nautiloid fossils. And the interesting thing to ICR and to me and Answers in Genesis was that these nautiloid fossils were basically oriented in the same direction. It was like they were caught in a fast-moving flood of water and then rapidly buried in sediment so that all of them are basically oriented, you know, in the same direction. Now, there's a few of them that are vertical. There's a few of them that are kind of discombobulated in different directions, but the vast number of them are oriented exactly as you would expect them to be oriented if they were rapidly buried by sediment that was laid down by water in a massive flood.
0: That was flowing, flowing water. That's correct. Yeah, uh, I actually got to see those firsthand myself a few years back. I took my wife and and my three kids, and we spent a week out with ICR at the Grand Canyon. And got to see those firsthand. It was truly amazing. They are indeed. One one of the other amazing things was they were there were several areas where we could see that there had been upthrusts into the sedimentary rock, and you could see that the sediments were deformed in a way that could have only happened if they were soft, if all of the layers were soft. That seemed absolutely. amazing to me.
2: That's, that's absolutely correct. When you look in, in uh, Grand Canyon and some of the areas towards the western end and places like that, you see exactly the same kind of thing you see in the Appalachian Mountains, where I live in the eastern tip of Tennessee, in the road cuts, you see layer upon layer of sedimentary rock that are, that are folded in all kinds of strange shapes, and, and upthrust, as you observe, can only be laid down when they're soft. And so that type of stuff uh, had to happen. You know, that upthrust, that buckling of the crust, as it were, had to happen while those sediments were still soft, because if they had already completely hardened, they would have just fractured and snapped. And so it would. they have the effect of looking like uh, two lateral motions of the earth, uh, you know, crumpling up a piece of paper, as it were. Right. So, yeah, that's a great observation.
0: You, you talked about those road cut-throughs, and I know, I remember as a kid driving along, my parents would drive through a mountain pass or something and see those cut-throughs, and you'd look at the sedimentary rock, and even as a child, it was totally amazing to me how— flat and even exactly level all those layers were, and yet I was being told that each layer was laid one on the other millions and millions of years later, and as a child it was just obvious to me that that simply couldn't be true.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that you make that observation because even as young children, you know, children can see things and observe things that to them just don't make sense. And so it kind of indicates to me that many times these things that old earth uh, geologists, uh, you know, evolutionary humanists uh, that have evolutionary humanism in their worldview, they put these things out there and expect us to set our brains aside, you know, suspend credulity, Mm -hmm. and, and just take by faith, what they say, you know, oh, they're the guys in the white lab coats, they're the ones with the PhDs, what they say, well, they, well, that must be true, they said so. And and we, uh, you know, we we start to do that as adults, yet young children can look at stuff like that and see, boy, that doesn't make much sense.
0: Yeah, so, the... yeah,
2: I mean, it's interesting that you made that observation as a child. I I, I can remember a couple of little things like that over the years, but uh, but not one quite as astute as that one.
1: The uh, big controversy in the uh, public school system domain uh, with respect to teaching of creation sciences is based just on that. Uh, Creationists are uh, called religious zealots and uh, um, regular evolutionary science is taught as fact. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, it is a faith-based, I don't want to call it a religion, they can call it science, but it takes more faith to believe in evolution, I believe, than it takes to uh, believe in What's found in Genesis? Do you want to comment on that?
2: Well, sure. I'd love to comment on that. In fact, I would go where you seem to hesitate. Sir. I would call evolutionary humanism a faith-based religion. Maybe to be kind to people who hold that worldview, I could call it a faith-based belief system. I mean, one of the things that just drives me crazy, and I hear it all the time, is you know they, they like to say well they like to say well no real scientist with a real PhD believes in creation. All of the real scientists know that evolution is a fact. Well, let me tell you something. I beg to differ with them. There are thousands upon thousands of scientists, many of them leading scientists in their field of study, in their discipline, who believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six ordinary days, just like the days that we live in. And they they make this comment, you know, that's actually, you nailed... One of the biggest problems in our society today, you know, we have allowed secular humanists to define the debate, and that's part of the problem we have today. How how have we let them define the debate? Well, we have let them say that evolution is science, but right. creation is religion.
0: Right.
2: If you want to believe religion, that's okay. You go ahead and believe it. You just keep it in the four walls of your church, but don't you bring it out here into the public arena, and certainly don't bring it into the public school system. We teach real science over here in the public education system. And it drives me crazy when I hear them say that. Why? Because evolution is not science. It never has been, and it never will be. It is a faith-based belief system. Of course, there's a listener out there probably thinking, well, this guy's gone over the deep end. Well, if we've got a few minutes, let me go there for a second. What is the definition of empirical science? Your empirical science can be defined in a couple of ways. You know, it is a, a system that's based on facts that, you know, that, that show evidence for a uh, particular you know, a result that you're looking for. It's, based, it's systematically based on you know, facts. Well, when you look for facts in evolution, there are no facts out there. When you look at empirical science, what is the definition of empirical science? I mean, it has to encompass three things. It must be observable, it must be testable, and it must be repeatable. Well, when you apply, you know, uh, this whole empirical scientific model to evolution, has anybody ever seen seen evolution happen? No. Has anybody found any evidence that it happened in the past? No. I mean, they're still looking for the missing link, in fact, there's a reason they call it the missing link. It's still missing. It'll right. always be missing because it's not there. And so when you look at that, people say, well, wait a minute, we see evidence for change all the time. Now, I'm not talking about horizontal variation within a kind. Right. I am talking about vertical evolution from particles evolving over billions of years into people. That is vertical evolution. Folks, that requires the addition of outside genetic information to the DNA in order for the organism to then, you know, reproduce and pass that information on to the offspring in order for the offspring to be higher and more complex. Folks, we never see any evidence out there of information adding itself to DNA by itself. The addition of genetic information always requires an outside intelligence. And so vertical evolution does not happen. So if there's no scientific facts that support evolution, if there is no uh, evolution observed, if there's no evidence that it happened in the past, what it really means is that evolution is outside of the realm of empirical science. Therefore, it is philosophical. It is a faith-based belief system.
1: If I can add one thing, uh, Mr. Gardner, with respect to the genetics what we observe in genetics is a loss of information when it comes to mutation, and I've never seen a mutation in medicine that's beneficial. Never. It's always a cause for disease, death, or deformity. I call it the three Ds, and I'm that's still true. waiting for a scientist's or, scientist or, or a doctor to tell me about a good beneficial uh, mutation in medicine.
2: Boy, that's absolutely a great observation, and that's true, because that's the very next fallback position that evolutionists go to. Well, you know, uh, of course we we have evolution happening. We have, you know, mutations. Well, like Spetner-Lee, Dr. Lee, said not one point mutation has ever been observed that has one single bit of, of DNA information to the genome, not one. And what you just pointed out is dead on the money that every... You know, every mutation that they've ever studied always is a loss of genetic information, not the addition. And so it is detrimental to the organism, uh, not beneficial. But, but anyway, the, you know, back to the old idea of, of faith versus uh, of, uh, science. You know, evolution is science while faith is religion. It's not true. And the thing that most people do not stop to think about is that every single person has a belief system a belief system about how the world got here, how everything came to be. And that belief system affects every decision that they make every day of their life. And so if you have the evolutionary humanist worldview, uh, and you believe you got here through random chance accidental processes over billions of years, uh, that's going to cause certain behaviors in your day-to-day life. On the other hand, if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and that he made rules for living life, and you violate the rules. that's called sin, and the penalty for violating the rule is the death penalty, that will modify your behavior, and you will have a different set of behaviors that happen every day in your daily life. And so there's consequences for believing in one or the other.
0: Wonderful. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. You can call in at 609 398 10:20. Our guest is Jim Gardner from Answers in Genesis. He's going to be in the area this weekend, Saturday, November 21st, at Pilgrim Academy, 301 West Moss Mill Road. Do register. Call 609-965-2866. It's a $10 per person cost, but includes lunch or $25 for the entire family. Jim, we're really looking forward to you coming out this
1: way. And, Jim, I might add that I will be attending that conference, and I will seek you out, and uh, hopefully we can uh, have some wonderful fellowship time. Boy, that would be great. I well, listen, uh, one of the things that I wanted to carry on with you in this uh, this uh, concept of consequences in the path that you choose is that if you if, if the scientists in our public school system can um, systematically um, destroy the foundation that you have in biblical thought, biblical belief, and faith, uh, just by destroying everything in Genesis that you were taught in the Bible, the whole thing crumbles. So I, I'd like you to comment on how important it is to maintain that, that Genesis foundation going forward in somebody's walk uh, into life.
2: Well, it's extremely important because uh, we, we need to understand that Genesis is the very foundational book of the Bible. And as I mentioned earlier, almost every single Christian doctrine has its roots in the book of Genesis. And so if, if we're taught in Sunday school that, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that, um, you know, there were two trees in the garden, the tree of knowledge and the tree of good and evil, and God gave a command to Adam saying that he could eat of anything of the garden but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Therefore, every- because the day you eat therein thou shalt surely die, so forth. In other words, there's a warning. Um, You know, what we're really basically looking at is the origin of the world that was perfect. And God created the heavens and the earth perfect uh, from the very beginning, from the get-go. There was nothing wrong with it. It was not 99% perfect, it was 100% perfect. And then Adam... Chose to disobey God's single command. Of course, it didn't have anything to do with a piece of fruit. It was a test to see if Adam would obey him or disobey him, and we know what happened. Adam disobeyed him, and just as God warned, there was a curse that came down on the entire creation, and we have been living in a fallen world ever since. Now, we teach this, and we try to teach this to our kids and our grandkids in church and school, you know, in in Sunday school and so forth. Because it's the truth. But as they start to grow up and then we send them off to the public education system, they are being taught a worldview that's very different. They're being taught a worldview that says no, God didn't create it. Evolution is how man got here through death and disease and bloodshed and struggle over billions and billions of years. Now, if you stop and think about those two different worldviews, the implications are are huge. You see, on the one hand, the implication that there is no God and that we got here through random chance processes of of evolution over billions of years, what you're really teaching the child or the young person is that they are the top of the food chain, that they can determine truth for themselves, that they can change the definition of truth any time that they want to. What you're really doing is you're teaching the child or the young person, that they are the god in control of their own life. Mm. And it's a lie. It's not true. What, what Where, the, where the, the ongoing implication is, you know, you teach a child that they're nothing more than evolved animals, then why would we be surprised when some of them begin to act like animals and go into schools like Columbine and blow away a bunch of their classmates or Virginia Tech or places like that? I mean, I, in the presentations that I'm going to bring on Saturday, I'm going to show some quotes from people like Jeffrey Dahmer and a number of things showing this very you know, issue of the consequences of the path you choose. And there are consequences. You see, there are two different worldviews. One worldview teaches that man is the top of the food chain and determines truth and what truth is. The other worldview teaches, no, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, he created a perfect man. Sin brought death, disease, bloodshed in the world, and it's been going downward ever since. And what many of the people in our churches don't understand is that they are two diametrically, diabolically opposed worldviews. They are going in opposite directions. They wind up in two different destinations, each carrying two different eternal sets of consequences. Mm. And so our young people, you know, are being taught, well, you know, evolution is true, the Bible is wrong, you know, when you die, that's it, they put your body in the ground, they bury you, the worms eat your body, that's it, end of story. Well, that's not the end of the story. The unfortunate thing for many people is they step through that veil of death into eternity. They are set. They can no longer change the path that they're on, and the destination that they are going to arrive on. You know, I hear a lot of pastors say, if you want to have eternal life, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not exactly true. Every human being ever conceived or ever born already has eternal life. Mm. It's a matter of where they're going to spend it. Now, if you want to spend your eternal life in heaven with Jesus Christ, absolutely, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. The Bible's very clear about that. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through the man Christ Jesus. I mean, he is the way, the truth, and the light. But if you choose not to believe in Jesus Christ, you still are going to live forever. You're just not going to like where you wind up living. <laughs> and that's the insidious nature of the teaching of evolutionary humanism. It teaches that death is it, that's the end of the story, Everything's over. Well, I don't happen to believe that, and I I think the Scripture is very, very clear on that point.
0: Now, Jim, given that there are these two faith-based worldviews that are in competition with each other, and given your own experience where you were raised as a missionary kid and exposed to only one view, and then when you got into the public arena, you quickly switched over or gradually switched over to the opposing view, do you think it's a good idea that Christian parents should actually <coughs> expose their kids to the ideas of evolution and science from their own perspective first, and not just give uh, a, a biblical-only, let's call it, viewpoint to their children?
2: Well, I would I would defer the answer to that question to Dr. Henry Morris. Uh, the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, who wrote a book called Christian Education for the Real World. And I'm going to paraphrase what he said in there. He said it would be good if we did not teach evolution at all, period. However, since our children will be exposed to evolution more and more early, I might add, Mm. that uh, if we have to teach evolution, it is best taught at college or university level, and then in the setting of a Christian college. But even that is becoming more and more difficult. And so I would absolutely say to parents, number one, you need to arm and equip yourself to answer the questions that your children have and come home from the public education system with. You need to be able to give them serious, answers and refute what they're being taught in the public education system. Because if you don't do that, I mean, they're going to get the answer somewhere. Unfortunately, it's the wrong answers that they're getting. Now, that said, uh, if a parent is equipped and have armed themselves with the scientific information that supports biblical creation and know the answers to the questions that their kids will be answering, then by all means, we need to go on and we need to teach our kids but the best teaching moments are obviously the ones where they're asking questions. Because when questions are asked, that means the mind is open to the answer. Just to try to cram this or to cram that down, you know, a, a child's throat isn't particularly or isn't isn't the best learning situation. So you have to be there as a parent, ready with the answer to give it when the child is asking the question. Now the way you do that, of course, is you can can come to a, a seminar or a conference like we're going to have this coming Saturday. Uh, you can uh, buy books and DVDs. We're going to have a bunch of those, by the way, on the book tables uh, there for parents and for uh, for people to, to buy and uh, start to equip themselves. But the answer to your question is yes. We need to be teaching both. The preference would be not to teach evolution at all, but we're it's, way past that point now. Yeah.
0: And I think I, I, I do remember hearing about a study of children whether or not they believed in evolution the ones who did not believe in evolution actually got higher exam scores on the topic of evolution so if you the more you know about evolution how exactly how it works the more likely you are not to believe it because yeah, it just I doesn't think that's make true. sense and i
2: think that's because when a person whether they're a young person or an adult or, you know, even somebody studying at university level, when you take a serious look at the science, the true empirical science, it always points to the truth of the Scripture. Never in all of the years that I've been studying all these different ologies have I ever ran across a scientific fact that goes contrary to what the Word of God teaches. Now, sometimes you run across something that, on initial examination, appears to be contrary, but when you look at it in depth and you drew real, good, and true empirical science, what's that? Observable, testable, repeatable? Then you find that the science always points to the truth of the Scripture, so Christians should never be afraid of the science.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to comment, um, Jim, before we switch gears here, is that I've always felt that uh, genetics, DNA, the Human Genome Project, uh, the DNA is actually the thumbprint of God. I think that once people realize how complex the genome is and how it repairs itself and how it duplicates itself and so forth, it's absolutely impossible that DNA actually formed in the primordial soup. It's absolutely, absolutely impossible. And I've always maintained that uh, if you truly understood genetics, you would have to believe in a creator God. Um, Now, what I'd like to do, springboarding off of that, is ask you, what happened to the dinosaurs?
2: Well, the dinosaurs, and that question, is probably one of the most often asked questions that we have today, and the reason is relatively simple. Dinosaurs are the poster boy for evolution. Um, It is something that evolutionary humanists use to hook our kids, kind of like a fisherman with a fishing pole. They hook our kids and reel them in, and then teach them that, all the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, and they talk about it as the scientific fact, and then they go on and use that as their springboard to teach the kids the evolutionary worldview, the idea that we got here without a God being involved. And they laugh and they ridicule, you know, people who believe in creation and the Bible and say ah, the Bible doesn't even talk about dinosaurs. And so most Christians, you know, they've never seen the word dinosaur in the Bible and so they just kinda kinda wilt or they kinda turn around, change the subject or whatever, and go on. Well the, one of the talks that I'm going to do this coming weekend is uh, dinosaurs and dragons, are they a fact or are they a myth? And in that talk, one of the things that I'm going to mention, among many others, is the fact that, you know, it, well, I'm going to try to deal with four questions, uh, five if I have the time. I'm going to try to see if we can, from the Bible, answer these four questions. Where did the dinosaurs come from? How did they get here? When did they die out? Why did they die out? And how did they die out and become extinct? And we're going to try to answer those four questions from the Bible, but one of the first questions that people always kind of throw up in your face is that, ah, the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. Well, the reason that you cannot find the word dinosaur in the Bible is relatively simple. The word dinosaur was not invented until 1841 when the scientists started finding fossils of these great beasts. The King James Version of the Bible was translated in 1611, hundreds of years before the word dinosaur was even invented. So, of course, the Bible doesn't call them dinosaurs. Mm. The, word, the word wasn't even invented yet. So the real question is, what does the Bible call them? And The Bible calls them dragons. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of references in the Bible to dragons, or dinosaurs as we call them. More specifically, the Bible gives the names of two very specific dragons in Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. And so in answering, you know, trying to answer those questions, uh, we're going to take a a long, hard look at uh, at the Bible in that session called Dinosaurs and Dragons and answer those four questions, of course, one of the, the major questions uh, in that group of four was what happened to them. You know, wh- why did they die out? How did they die out? And when did they die out or go extinct? And the short answer is they died out in the worldwide global flood of Noah that happened about 4,500 years ago or so. And I'm going to develop that in detail in that talk coming up Saturday. Uh, but there's an even more interesting question to me. And that is, uh, what happened to the dinosaurs that got off the ark? You see, there were actually two of every kind of animal on board the ark. That included two of each dragon kind. Uh, The Bible doesn't say two of every kind shall come unto Noah, except the dragons. It says two of every kind. And so that means that there were two of every dinosaur kind on board the ark. My question is, what happened to the ones that got off the ark? All the others got killed in the worldwide global flood. And uh, we're going to try to answer that one too this coming Saturday if we have some time.
0: Now, I can hear my atheist friends thinking, well, dinosaurs are way too big to fit on the ark. That's crazy. They're huge.
2: And indeed, some of them were big. You know, some of those T Rexes were 25, 27 foot tall. Some of those long necks, as we call them, or, the, you know, the Brachiosaurus or the uh, Apotosaurus types were, you know 60 70 feet long and you know dozens and dozens and dozens of tons some of them are really big so the answer to you know how in the world could God have gotten two of every kind of animal on board the ark especially two of those dinosaurs of each dinosaur kind is again relatively simply answered right. number one most people think that the the ark was some kind of a fairy tale fantasy type looking boat it wasn't the ark was huge. It was over 437 feet long, 72 feet wide, 43 feet high. It contained a deck, three decks from one end to the other. It was a monster. In fact, it could contain as many as 125,000 sheep-sized animals, still would have had enough room for, for a year's worth of food and fresh water, and would have had more room left over for the uh, eight humans and their special needs. And let me tell you something, that is if the ark was based on a short cubit. You see, the the arc's dimensions are given to us in cubits, and so a short cubit would give it a dimension of about 437 feet long. The cubit was uh, generally uh, determined by the length of the tip of the uh, finger to the elbow when your hand is extended, usually considered to be about 18 inches, but the cubit was determined by the length of the forearm of the king that was in power at the time. Mm -hmm. And so some of those kings were as big as Shaquille O'Neal. They would add a 24-inch cubit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the ark could have been 600 feet long. So one reason there was no problem to get all those animals, including uh, all the dinosaurs, two two of each dinosaur kind kind on board the ark, was it was huge. Second reason is God did not have to bring two of every variation of the kind on Mm -hmm. board the ark. For instance, uh, take the ceratopsia kind of dinosaur. Our favorite, of course, is triceratops. Mm. But there's about uh, a dozen or more different variations of the ceratopsia kind that have been found in the fossil record. God didn't have to bring two of every variation of the ceratopsia kind. All he had to bring was two, a male and female, that best represented the genetic kind of ceratopsia, and bring them to Noah so Noah could let them on board the ark. Mm. So that's the second reason we didn't. We, we don't have a problem. Thirdly, God did not have to bring two full-grown
1: triceratops
2: go. to yeah, Noah they, they kind to let on board that the one. ark. Yeah. All he had to do was bring two juveniles, maybe knee-high or hip-high, so that at the end of the year of the flood, they would have gotten a little bit bigger by that time, of course. He lets them off the ark, and they begin to start uh, breeding and start reproducing. That's the third reason. And, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a number of other reasons that we could go into, but for the sake of brevity, let me stop there. There's, there's no problem getting on board, uh, you know, all those different kinds of animals.
0: Wonderful. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Evidence for Faith radio show. I'm Keith Kendricks.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis.
0: And with us is James Gardner, a speaker from Answers in Genesis, who's going to be out this way uh, speaking at Pilgrim Academy Saturday, uh, the 21st at 9:30 a.m. You can call 6099652866 to sign up for that. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, there, I have read with interest a lot of the research that is going on about scientists in uh, academic in secular academic institutions who are discovering fresh blood, inside the bones of dinosaurs and blood vessels. In fact, I have, I carry a BlackBerry, and I have a selection of photographs in there of the actual microscopic shots they've taken of these red blood cells that look fully intact.
2: Yes, yes, extremely interesting. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show a few of those slides in my talk on dinosaurs next week. But, uh, you know, the, the whole Jurassic Park scenario was a big thing, Sold. Bunches and bunches of movie tickets. Obviously, the three Jurassic Park movies, based and predicated on the idea that they found a mosquito uh, embedded in amber from the you know from the period of time of the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. and they extracting the DNA from that mosquito that had bitten a dinosaur. So, in other words, they had dinosaur DNA, but it was fragmented. So they spiced in some DNA from, you know, frogs or something like that. Let me tell you something, folks. They don't need to go hunting mosquitoes in amber. They have ample dinosaur DNA available to them today and it's complete. Uh, Buddy Davis and a number of other people, we've found frozen, fresh frozen dinosaur bones with the meat on the bones and the blood in the meat that you could actually feed the sled dogs up in Alaska. There was a scientist at North Carolina State University, a paleontologist, that was working with the TRX bone, and she accidentally broke it. And when it broke open, inside she observed red blood cells and soft elastic tissue that, when you stretched it out, it would snap back like a rubber band. Some of the things that you were alluding to a minute ago. I mean, this type of evidence certainly indicates that. Dinosaurs did not die out 65 million years ago. Most scientists that are serious scientists will agree. Uh, doctor, you probably would too. That uh, DNA, you know, cannot survive more than a few thousand years. It degrades and disintegrates.
0: Right, so and how
2: I... in the world yeah. could dinosaurs have died out 65 million years ago and go extinct, and yet we have lots and lots of dinosaur uh, material, blood and soft tissue stuff like that still preserved and available for us to study here in the year 2009. What it means very simply is that they didn't die out 65 million years ago at all. They've just got too many zeros on their number. As a matter of fact, they've got uh, a problem with zeros in a lot of their numbers. I mean, dinosaurs, you know, didn't die out 65 million years ago or even six and a half million years ago. They might have died out a few thousand years ago.
1: In two words, fresh frozen. (laughs) And, you know, what? we're going to use that as a teaser, Jim, so that if people really want to know how it is that the dinosaurs became extinct, they can find out fully the true story of what happened to the dinosaurs.
0: Yep. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, a little more about um, the the talks that you'll be doing, and uh, just give a little commercial for that. Well, we're going to
2: be doing a number of talks. We're going to be talking, of course, about the consequences of the path you choose. We're going to be talking about dinosaurs and dragons those two we're going to be talking about uh, why compromise biblical authority we're going to deal with this issue of the age of the earth and what does the science point to and what does the scripture point to when it comes to the age of the earth we're going to discuss in simple layman terms why you cannot trust radiometric dating or carbon fourteen dating in fact it does not prove that the world is billions of years old so if that doesn't prove that why even go there as a christian we're going to be talking about the mystery of ancient man, one of my favorite topics. I've I've spent uh, a number of years traveling around the world, looking at archaeological ruins, and uh, putting this presentation together. There's going to be some really interesting stuff. For instance, uh, finding stuff 11 and 12 thousand feet high in the Andes down in Peru. Um, we're going to talk about uh, another issue, and that uh, you know that is the issue of of uh, grand canyon fossils in the global flood we talked about that just a little bit so i'm hoping that everyone that uh... can will come out next uh, saturday and then and on sunday as well at the church because we're going to be doing a total of six different topics and we're going to have lots and lots of resources on the book tables uh... for people to be able to go beyond what i'm talking about let me tell you something, folks I can touch just the tip of the iceberg of the information that's out there in a one-hour talk. That's why we bring lots of books and DVDs so people can research and, and study more on the topic that is of interest to them.
0: All right, and that uh, program on Sunday is going to be at Emmanuel Church, which is at 413 Whitehorse Pike in Egg Harbor City. It's a well-known landmark for that uh area. That's going to be Sunday, November 22nd. The service is at 1045. You're going to be addressing the topic, what is truth, correct? Correct. And then at 6.30 p.m., also six days or millions of years. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, uh, Jim, maybe you could give us the one strongest evidence you think that the Earth is actually young instead of billions of years old.
2: Well, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's not just one. Uh, one of, one of the best evidences that I think that the Earth is young is when we look at the geologic evidence, and that information comes from the Institute for Creation Research (ICR). They did an eight-year research project that uh, was called the RATE project: radioactive isotopes in the age of the Earth. And they studied radioactive isochrons and this whole issue of radiometric dating because of the assertions by evolutionists that uh, the world was billions and billions of years old. And in that eight-year research project, the Institute for Creation Research looked not just at radiometric dating, but they looked at carbon-14 dating as well. And uh, obviously we don't have time to go into all of that here, but, but the simplest thing is this. Radiometric dating has not... Proved that the world is billions of years old. And if that's true, and it is, I believe that ICRs proved that, then when you look at the scripture and you take and make a straightforward reading of the book of Genesis, what does it say? It says that God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it in six ordinary days, just like we live in. And when you add up the genealogies of the Bible, the soul was sold and begat so was and so was stolen, begat so-and-so, and he died, what you get is about 4,000 years from Adam to Christ. We have about 2,000 years from Christ to us.
1: Okay, James. Therefore,
2: you got about 6,000 years.
1: James, I, I want to thank you for being a guest on uh, Evidence for Faith. Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And, and I'm Keith Kendricks. And please join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m., Uh, for Evidence for Faith. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.